The word, you see that wonderful title, communion in community. Both of those words, communion and community, come from the same Latin word, the root of which is the word common. Something in common. Communion means, communion basically means the act of sharing or holding something in common. That's what the word means. Now, communion, as in the Lord's Supper, what you see here, that term has now been applied to what we do because it's speaking to what we hold in common in terms of our faith in Christ. But communion, the the English word, actually means the act of sharing or holding in common. Association or fellowship. That's why sometimes people will say, let's fellowship around the Lord's Supper. It doesn't mean let's come up and then, you know, talk about the football game tomorrow or something. It means fellowship, hold it in common, uh, association. Communion actually means, one of the definitions of it is community. It just is community. Community from the same Latin word, common, means common possession, enjoyment, liability, uh, holding something in common. Similar word. Same word, actually. Common character. That's what community means. Agreement. Association. Just like communion. Life in association with others. That's probably how we use it most frequently. Community means life in association, in connection with others. We have something in common. Now, a community can be life in association with others who share a location. Like we all, people will say, oh, we're part of the community in Richmond. We live here in a community, a location. Or it can also mean life in association with others who share beliefs or values of some kind or a vision. You know, they'll call probably something like people who work for Google or something, the, the Google community, because they have the same vision and they're, they're all about making Jeff Bezos even richer. Oh no, he's Amazon, isn't he? Right. Who's the Google guy? Does anybody know? nobody knows okay but they share a common vision this kind of thing they share something we share christ amen that's what communion is about the the grape juice represents the blood the bread represents the body of christ we have communion sharing holding in common a belief in jesus and Jesus himself. Our fellowship and association with each other is centered in Christ. Simple, right? Communion specifically celebrates him. Every time we do this, just like Sharice got up as we were beginning to worship and said, and and it's a good reminder Let's remember why we're here. We're, you know, hey, it's great to come and there's snacks. I appreciate what happens every Saturday back there. I appreciate being able to just talk with people and hang out. I like that. Uh, All of these things. But again, all of it, the food is there, the fellowship we have, the worship we have, all of it is centered in Christ. That's why we're here. 
That's why we're here. It's all about him. If we lose sight of that, well, we're suddenly just off by a few degrees, maybe, or a lot. He's the center. He's the focus. Communion celebrates him and that we have him together. We don't just, I have him personally. We have him together. Tonight, I want us to see the biblical emphasis on the shared experience and value of the gospel. The shared experience and value of the gospel so that we'll pursue this shared experience together, intentionally. Like Sharice getting up and saying, hey, we're here to worship. Now there's an opportunity to say, that's right, that's why we're here. Let's put aside the to-do list. Let's put aside the other things. We'll even... I don't mean live in unreality. Put aside or lay at the feet of Jesus our anxieties, our conflicts, our our weights, the things that are weighing us down. How many had some of those this week? Things that weighed them down. Things that, any anxieties, anybody? Anything to worry about? Anything that was a distraction? Anybody got distracted? Did anybody forget Jesus for one second this last week? (laughs) is anybody here a liar that they didn't have those seconds and moments it's it's absolutely vital and it's good to keep being reminded to come back every saturday we do this to say oh yeah it's about jesus ultimately everything else is gonna come into place if i seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness, which is Jesus. If I've got him, the other things are going to fall into place. Even if I suffer on the way there. And I will. The Bible promises us some of that. So there's some of that. It doesn't mean we'll you know, skip through life. But let's do it intentionally. Let's strive, not just personally, but together to make Christ the center. To fellowship around him. Amen? To have communion. And remember, this is about Jesus and what he's done for me and for you. For us. Amen? Intentionally. This fall, we're going to stand together. We're going to walk together. Let's grow together. How many need to grow a little in Christ? Oh, yeah. How many would like to pursue Jesus more wholeheartedly than you did last week? Yeah. Together. How about who would like to do it together? I would. Fight sin together. Oh, yeah. Pray together. Worship together. Repent together. Surrender ourselves together. Believe together. Bear fruit together. Yes, I want to bear fruit. I want to see more people go into heaven. And... I think, by what I see in the Bible, the promises, that we have to do that together. I can, be a, I can be a little bit fruitful on my own, but together that gets multiplied exponentially. Amen? And, and I've seen it because some people, I, I'm thinking back years ago, we had a guy who was great at gathering in. He brought people in, and he wasn't, maybe the greatest at sort of the ongoing follow-up and, and 
the care that maybe people needed pastorally. That wasn't really his forte. But man, could he draw people in and then somebody else would take care. Okay, you know, I'll come alongside and, you know, we can care for people. We can do more together, particularly intentionally, than we can alone. Amen? We are, what, what is that expression? We're more than the sum of our parts. We can do more together than a whole bunch of us individually. What do they call that? What's that word? Synergy. Together. Just like they say, one person might be able to lift up, uh, you know, something heavy that weighs, let's say, 100 pounds. Two people could lift up 300. Why? How? Well, it just is. It's just there's something about doing something together. You could do more than you could do two individuals could do. Let's do it together, amen? This fall, one of the uh, things that didn't get mentioned, coming up starting uh, 10 days from now, 11 days from now, is life groups. We are going to begin doing home groups again, life groups, small groups in homes, because there's something that takes place in a home that doesn't happen in the larger meeting. There's something special that God can do and that he does through people. When they come into a small group, they can kind of unmask, they can be real, they can be supported in a way that in the larger gathering, that doesn't really happen in the same way. But in small groups, it can happen. So we're starting with at least two, starting the 20th and 21st of this month, one at Charvin and Claudia's. They had an event tonight, they're not here, and one at mine and Rose's home. I'm actually, for the first little bit, I'm going to lead both of those, but that's beginning, and we can intentionally get in each other's lives. I encourage you to be part of it. I hope that we have to uh, broaden that ministry very soon and have three or four. But we gather, whether in a larger group or a smaller group, focused on Christ, and we can do it together. That's what we're going to do. That's what we must do. Amen? Okay. Community. And tonight we're going to share communion together as an act of community worship. An act of community focus on Christ. Okay, let's read Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 32. Acts chapter 20, 17 to 32. And from Miletus, he, meaning Paul, and from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, that is, let me just clarify, that's Asia Minor. It is what is now Turkey. It was called Asia Minor, and um, that's what that means when it says Asia. Okay, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. 
how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions or prison and trials await me, or hardships. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I want to stop for just one second. That is an interesting statement that the former persecutor of the church would make. I'm free of the blood of all men. This was a guy they would know he had, before he converted had carried people away to prison and had been responsible for the death of followers. And just before this, he talked about the gospel of the grace of God. That's how powerfully the grace of God worked to convert this guy who'd been the persecutor, the chief persecutor of the church. And the grace of God has worked in him that he became he was the greatest persecutor of the church. He became the greatest proponent of Christ in the world in his lifetime. He went from one extreme to the other, still considered the greatest believer ever. And this guy did that. And he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. The grace of God has done its work. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to overseers and elders. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all God's people. Now, just a little context here. This is Paul's third missionary trip. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that three times he went on what they call a missionary journey or missionary trip. He went to some of the same places sometimes, but sometimes he went 
to a place and then didn't return, but there were some of them he visited. He had visited Ephesus before. So on this trip, he's coming back, but he, he has a schedule to keep. He wants to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, so he doesn't want to stop in Ephesus because he knows them well. Three years he spent there, so he stops in this place called Miletus, which is about uh, 50 to 70 kilometers south of Ephesus. But since he knows he's going to land there as he's, you know, in a voyage on the sea, he gets word to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he says, I'm going to be in Miletus. I won't be able to stop in Ephesus. I want you to come to me. Because he knew that he, he wasn't going to be uh, coming back that way. He wouldn't be with them again. So, he sends and these elders make the you know, trip of whatever it is, 50 kilometers, 70 kilometers, somewhere in that range. And um, it says, verses 37 and 38, uh, at the end of the chapter, say that the people spoke, who, who Paul spoke to, they wept, they hugged him, they kissed him, because he said they wouldn't see his face again, as we read. He, like Jesus, knew that the enemies of the truth were determined to silence him and to halt the, the advance of the gospel. They were determined. They would not stop until they had Paul. And this giant of the faith accepted that. In fact, a couple chapters over, when it says that they were trying to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem that Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to go to prison for him, but to die for him. And unlike Peter on the night that he betrayed Jesus, Paul meant it and he went through with it. He did it. He, he knew, like Jesus said, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. And what happens? It bears fruit. Paul was doing it. He was committed. He was going. This guy was a... That's, that's who called the elders. So when this great apostle says to these people, come down and meet me, I want to admonish you, I want to talk to you one last time, they came. He cared for them and they knew it. And they got there and they're, they're loving him because they know that he loves them. Just as he says, you know, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. It's like... Oh man, it was costly for Paul to do this, but he cared about them that much. But look at how Paul, look at how he cared for the people of God, the church. Verse 16 says, he knew he didn't have time to stop there if he was going to arrive in Miletus. So he sends for them, and they come. And he says, he exhorted them this final time for the benefit of the church the benefit of the people of God. With all humility, with tears, with trials, it wasn't an easy life, but he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you, I didn't shrink back, I didn't pull back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Oh, this won't be popular. And there were times, like you read the book of Corinthians, he didn't just do things that were popular. He said some things that... Mm, they didn't like it. I'll be honest with you. I want to be liked. I'm a really nice guy. <laughs> you, I'm, I know I'm telling you things you know, 
but I want to be liked. But there are times where it's like, mm, something overrides that, something more important, and I appreciate those people in my life who will do that. I, I, you know, I know I've, I've you know, praised Pastor Mel for things like that, but he does things like that. There were certain things, even the last summer Pastor Mel was alive, Rose and I went to visit him and Bernie and sat on the balcony, and Pastor Mel had some th- things to say, and I'm, I don't know that he felt, I don't know that he knew he wouldn't be around six months from then, but he was not holding back, and he let us have some things, and told us some things that he thought needed to be adjusted. And he's a re- he was a very gentle, merciful guy. He, if, if he had a fault, he probably was too merciful a lot of times. But he could speak some clear things. And he was also 88 years old or 89. So it was kind of like, eh, I'm, <laughs> I'm done caring. I'm going to be like that soon. I'm going to be an old crotchety guy. And I'm going to just get all over you and tell you things like it is. No, that's not easy. But here's Paul. Here's this guy. I, I, held, I didn't shrink back from anything that would profit you. And some of that would not have been comfortable. It's like you need to repent. You need to turn back. This is sin. This will kill you. You'll, he uses the term in one place. These people made shipwreck regarding their faith. It means they crashed. And they're not going anywhere. And Paul knew that too much was at stake to just say, well, that's okay. I don't want to be... I don't want to be bothersome or I don't want to be unpopular. No, I, ha- I, there was, I didn't shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable. And teaching you, he says, publicly and from house to house. Did you see that? Here we're talking about life groups beginning. Paul says in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly. That means in the public meeting and from house to house. Paul was not just the keynote speaker at the mega church who would only speak when, you know, the thousands were there. No, he went from house to house. He got with people and spoke the truth wherever it was necessary. I, if it sounds like hero worship of Paul, not quite, because he says it's the grace of God working in him. So, but I want to emulate him. I want to follow like him. They knew, like we do, that there are benefits unique to public meetings and other benefits unique to home groups. And Paul did that. Paul wasn't just that big guy. He would get down with people. He was humble enough to do so. Throughout this passage, you find the words repeated, declaring to you, teaching you, admonishing you, solemnly testifying. Solemnly. It means it was a sobering moment, but he would do it. Preaching, admonishing, speaking, Paul surrendered. He didn't just talk. It says he surrendered himself to the spread of the gospel, knowing, as verse 23 says, knowing that chains and hardship await him everywhere he goes. You know, 
the Bible talks about prophecy being for comfort, encouragement, and edification. And here's Paul. He says, the Holy Spirit solemnly testified to him in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions, chains and hardship awaited him. It's like, oh, I heard from the Holy Spirit today. Yeah, what did he say? I'm probably going to end up in jail. You know, like that's not, that's not comfortable. But, you know, there's hardship coming. This guy, again, how could he do that? Partly because somehow God had spoken that to him at the beginning of his call, and it was like, that's, this is going to cause the spread of the gospel. How many would like that call? How many would like to hear the Holy Spirit say those things? How many would rather hear him say, you're great? <laughs> you know, yeah. He's laying down his life for Jesus and for Jesus' people. That's the gospel of grace. This guy who was taking lives, for the, taking the lives of the people who'd responded to the gospel, is now the guy that's laying down his life for the gospel. And many, many, many are getting saved because of it. And also because of it, many, many, many opponents wanted Paul gone. Now, the gospel has to get personal in order to have an effect on your life, right? The gospel's got to get personal before it moves us to respond. We have to see that, ah, yes, Jesus died for my sin. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. If the message of Jesus' death and resurrection is just a general, if it's just out there, we are more inclined to think, yeah, everyone's a sinner. Jesus died for us all. I'm part of that great collective of sinners who need this saving work. And I accept that in a sort of general sense. Not good enough. Saving faith is that kind of very personal realization of sin and guilt and culpability to Christ, to God. I'm answerable to God. My sin put Jesus on the cross. I'm a sinner personally. That's saving faith has to get personal like that. And that kind of very personal understanding of being forgiven in Christ. Oh. I'm forgiven. It got real for me at one point. I sort of believed. I even told people I was a born-again Christian. But I was not. And then I remember when, oh, it, it's like it landed. I'm a sinner. And then I heard the gospel. And then I'm forgiven. And I could feel the difference. Now, we're not led by feelings we're moved and we're, we're, we're led by faith. But feelings happen, amen? They're part of our humanity. And I felt it. Oh, the weight. I know that I'm forgiven personally. In the same way that I knew very personally that I was a sinner. I, and the gospel of grace 
has to get personal like that. We're saved by grace. That is God's unmerited favor that supernaturally changes me has to be personal. But throughout this passage, we see this subtle emphasis on the church, the people of God collectively. In verse 25, Paul says, I know that all of you among whom I preach the kingdom will see my face no more. All of you among whom I preached. Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Among whom? To shepherd the church of God. There's this collective, there's this plural aspect to the church. Three more times he uses the word among you in verse 29, 30, and 32. The gospel is, has got to be personal for us to get saved, but it's not just personal. It's not just me and Jesus. It's not just personal. The gospel is for us, the collective people of God, the church. It does its work among us. Amen? It does it. The Holy Spirit works among us. Not just on me. It's not just in me. Not just me and Jesus. No, me and you and Jesus. Among us. Be on guard for yourselves. He's saying that to the elders. Be on guard for yourselves. You watch yourselves personally. And for all the flock, be on guard for them. Among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. This is a really uh, brief aside, I hope. I like something about this word where Paul says, in the New American Standard, some translations translate it differently, but... This particular translation is considered the most literal translation. At times, that makes it maybe a little bit more awkward because it's the way it's worded. It's not quite as readable. But it says, among whom, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, that's the sheep, among whom the Holy Spirit made you overseers. There's something about that word that caught me when I saw he's not saying over whom the Holy Spirit made you overseers. You're overseers, but you're still part of the flock. You're sheep. You're sheep too. You guys just happen to have a call to oversee some things and to serve in the church. But you're serving among the flock, not over the flock. The flock has a shepherd, a chief shepherd, and it's Jesus. But here the overseers are serving as overseers among the flock. I like that because there's an aspect where it's like, yeah, I'm among the whole flock as an overseer and I'm going through the same things as you guys, as everybody else and everybody I know no matter how long they've been walking with Christ, they're in the same boat. 
Billy Graham, he wasn't exactly a pastor. They called him America's pastor, but he was an evangelist. He, he wasn't pastoring a church. But somebody like that, he was going through the same things as you. That guy who led millions to Christ. But he was walking. He was not an overseer over the church. I mean, there's an element where, you know, you could take that too far. But he's among us. And he knew, he said even, that he knew not a day would go by that he wasn't utterly dependent on the grace of God. Billy Graham did not stand when he passed away a few years ago. He did not stand before God and say, I made it. I did it. No, it was the first thing. Jesus, you did it. You saved me and you got me here. Thank you. And that's for all of us. Overseers among whom. So no matter what our call is, we're still among the flock. We're still part of the flock. Sheep, okay? The church of God, which he purchased. Okay, I want to read that uh, verse. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, or King James says to feed the flock. I think NIV says to care for the church of God. Okay, it's, it's the same word. It gets used in different ways. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, there's a verse. It doesn't even say Jesus. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. This flock, this church, this community is very valuable to God. How valuable? He paid for it with his blood. We share the benefits of the purchase price, which is Christ's life. How valuable is your soul? Valuable enough for Jesus to say, I'll take the cross so that you can be saved. How valuable is his bride, his church? Valuable enough to say, I'm going to shed my blood to bring those people into that reconciled relationship with God so they can be with me forever. How valuable is the church? Look around at somebody else in the church right now. That's how valuable they are. That's how valuable they are that Jesus would do that. The blood of Jesus, forgiveness for and cleansing from sin. And inclusion in the flock, the church of God, which is more than just this right here. And now, you know, a congregation gathering. He says further on, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Sanctified. All those who are set apart for God's holy purposes. That's how, that's what the church is. That's how valuable it is. To give you an inheritance among all those, the past and the present believers, any future believers, those that are near, those that are far. That's why you meet a believer from some faraway country and there's something we hold in common. There's something about that communion. There's some sharing of we have Christ at the center of our lives. All those who are set apart by God for his holy purposes. 
I'm going to just ask uh, if you guys would distribute the communion, uh, please. Thank you. Uh, maybe if there's one or two more so that they don't have to carry both bread and juice. Oh, thank you, Malik. That's, thank you, Michael. Just to quickly summarize verses 29 to 31, I'm going to read it. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Church, be on the alert. We're living in the generation that that's happening for sure. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. It's like he's, he's pleading with tears. It, he, it matters to him. Anything that takes away from the supremacy of Jesus purchasing us with his blood, anything that emphasizes us as having merited salvation is perverse. The word perverse here means distortion. It's a distortion that the gospel, well, Jesus did that great work and he did it, but it's actually now, you know, what Jesus did plus my works. No, my good works are evidence that I've responded to the grace of God. My good works don't buy me anything. They don't buy me anything. Christ bought it all. He bought the church with his blood. Okay? And he says, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves they'll arise, speaking perverse things to do what? To draw away disciples after them. Don't do it. Trust here. We trust this. Amen? I don't know how to say more forcefully Don't stray from this. Don't stray from this. Keep getting this. If something starts to go, if I start to teach things that aren't here, I hope, I hope first of all, you'd come and talk to me and say, I don't think that lines up here to do that. If I I persist, go. Go where the word is taught where it's good and it's right. Don't let any perverse thing, any distortion, any kind of thing that creeps in, because what is the goal of that? To draw you away from Christ. Oh man, don't let anything do it. This, we're centering ourselves in Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Because no one, no person will come to the Father but by Him. We need the truth. Perverse things, it just means simply distortion or corruption of the truth. So Paul warns them and he says, people will attempt it. Don't let it happen. People will put more emphasis on man and what they do. No. People will elevate who man is in the whole equation of salvation don't buy it people will pull christ down don't buy it it's about christ and the gospel of grace they'll try to draw us away he he calls them savage wolves that's not nice really that's that's just not nice come on paul you can be more gracious than that you hurt my feelings I just don't feel safe if you call me a savage wolf no if i'm drawing people away from jesus I'm, I'm a savage, a savage wolf with bad intent. 
And he's right to do it. Not sparing the flock. So be on the alert for this. Okay? Everybody, tell somebody else, be alert. Be on the alert. The gospel of the grace of God saved Paul, the persecutor of the church. It saved Peter, who denied Christ the night that he was betrayed. It saved then, it saves now, the gospel of God's grace. And all who are one to Christ, I mean one as in W-O-N, one to Christ, are one, O-N-E, in Christ. We're one to him by the grace of God, and we're one in him by the grace of God. A people purchased with God's Son's blood. Thank God. A sanctified, set-apart community sharing and celebrating together the glorious grace of God.